0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Dave McKechnie. Last week, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, an advocacy group behind the first treaty to prohibit nuclear arms. In July, 122 nations backed the UN treaty, which was co-sponsored by Ireland, to ban and eventually eliminate all nuclear weapons. Crucially, however, the world's nine nuclear armed powers boycotted the negotiations. The Nobel Committee's award was not exactly a coded rebuke of these nations, especially the United States, at a time of rising nuclear tensions. In recent months, President Donald Trump has ratcheted up the rhetoric with North Korea. And now another threat looms, the landmark 2015 nuclear agreement between Iran and world powers, which Trump has threatened to rip up. This week, the US president may decertify the deal and throw its future into doubt. What will that mean? Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch will tell us. Later on today's podcast, I'll be speaking to long-time BBC war correspondent Martin Bell about the challenges facing the modern media to report on world events in a fair and truthful way. Do traditional principles still apply, or have the internet and social media changed the rules forever? But first to Washington, where much attention this week will be on Donald Trump's next move, after months of threatening to unravel the nuclear deal with Iran which was signed in 2015 and aimed at restricting its nuclear activities in exchange for the easing of sanctions on the Iranian economy. Even though all parties admit that Iran is complying with the deal, Trump is expected to refuse to certify it to Congress this week, and reports suggest he may also introduce new sanctions on Iran. There is a sense, perhaps, that this is the chance the US president has been waiting for. He has previously called it the worst deal ever, and in a strong denunciation of Iran at the United Nations in New York last month, He called the deal an embarrassment.
1: We cannot let a murderous regime continue these destabilizing activities while building dangerous missiles and we cannot abide by an agreement if it provides cover for the eventual construction of a nuclear program. The Iran deal was one of the worst and most one-sided transactions the United States has ever entered into. Frankly, that deal is an embarrassment to the United States, and I don't think you've heard the last of it, believe me.
0: I'm joined by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, can you you first talk us through the process this week, and what exactly does it mean that Donald Trump may not certify the nuclear deal?
2: Yes, we're expecting Donald Trump to deliver a speech this week broadly on the administration's Middle East policy and within that um, make some kind of announcement on the Iran deal. Um, It's potentially pencilled in for Wednesday, but that's still not clear uh, from the White House. But as you mentioned there in your introduction, from the very beginning of his presidential campaign, Donald Trump has identified the Iran deal as something as he put it, that was a bad deal for America and the worst deal ever, as he put it on various occasions. And and really, I suppose he's been looking for an opportunity to, to act on this promise of trying to revisit this deal. Now, under the terms of the agreement that were signed at the end of 2015, a Congress um, every 90 days, the White House uh, needs to uh, inform Congress about Iran's compliance with the deal. That's part of the agreement. So the next date for that is October the 15th, next weekend. To date, um, Donald Trump, since he's assumed the presidency, has kind of given the green light, ticked the box on the certification and reluctantly, if you like, said at every point, yes, they are in compliance with the deal. This time, he's given all hints that he's saying, going to say, no, they are not in compliance with the deal. And now the problem for the United States here is that the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors who are in inspecting these weapons in Iran and all the other parties to the deal are saying, in fact, they are in compliance with the deal. And um, so one of the things we're going to be looking for here is, you know, in what way does he say they're out of? They're not in compliance. Um, is it going to be that they're not in the spirit of the agreement, as they may put it for, etc.? Um, but that is why there is pressure on Donald Trump to act this week because of that deadline of October the 15th.
0: So if he doesn't certify it, what, what will that mean? Does it go to Congress or or mm. do we see new sanctions? Um-
2: well, yeah, what, what will happen is, technically, if he decertifies it, as the phrase goes, uh, Congress will then have uh, time, 60 days, to decide whether to reimpose the sanctions that were on Iran for so long here. And um, so really, he is, he's passing the book, essentially. He's going to probably be able to say, look, I'm not pulling out of the deal, but I'm just going to push this back to Congress to have a look at this and decide, do you want to put sanctions back or not? Um, and we've seen Donald Trump doing this on numerous occasions. We've seen it, for example, with the Cuba issue. Um, earlier this year, he pulled out of the Cuba agreement that o- Obama had reached, but not fully. He said, well, we're going to keep monitoring it. And if, if they don't adhere to X, Y and Z, well, then um, we may go back to the pre-Obama situation. So we're likely to see so- some kind of um, of a similar move to kind of half pull out of it, if you like. In saying that, though, the implications of him decertifying this are huge because essentially Iran can rightly correctly say that actually America pulled out of this deal, not Iran. We also then will have issues about America's commitment to any international agreements. This agreement was reached by the five U.N. Permanent Security Council members, Russia, China, France, Britain, etc., and U.S. plus Germany. So it was not just America who signed this deal. It was 600 countries plus the EU, which had a hugely important role in this when it was negotiated. They're not happy. Um, They have been undertaking frantic lobbying, frankly, here in Washington. The EU ambassador, David Sullivan, the Irishman, um, he has been meeting with figures in Congress. He has been publicly speaking about this, along with ambassadors from France, Britain and Germany. Um, And at the UN General Assembly in September, uh, President Macron from France publicly and back the deal, saying he thought it was a good idea to stay within the agreement. And Theresa May raised this issue privately with Donald Trump. So we're really seeing alarm by America's allies about the implications, not just in the near term. Essentially, Iran could could turn around rightly and say, well, America pulled out of the deal. and um, We can start stockpiling our uranium again, for example. Um, but also, as I say, the broader issue here about the whole concept of America's word Uh, America's commitment to international agreements and particularly at a time when they're trying to potentially form some kind of agreement with North North Korea um, this is very worrying.
0: One of the strange aspects of it is that key members of his administration uh, such as James Mattis said they support the continuation of the deal. Uh, How much hostility is there in in Congress to the agreement and and what might happen there?
2: That's a very good point because it is important to note here that Donald Trump is not... um, you know, erratically going out on a limb with a personal vendetta against the Iran deal. There is, to be fair, a lot of resistance to the Iran deal across America. Um, A lot of people in Congress were very uncomfortable with the Obama agreement and not just on the Republican side. We saw a lot of Democrats who were uncomfortable at the time, most notably the Senate Minority Leader, the most senior Democrat in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, the New York senator. He was opposed to this deal when it was signed in 2015. So in a sense, uh, Donald Trump is not, you know, talking to a vacuum here. There is a lot of skepticism towards the deal. In saying that, it's broadly seen to have worked for the last two years. And even Chuck Schumer, for example, is now behind the deal. He does not think it's a good idea to reopen it at this point. Um, but um, as I say, you know, Donald Trump is pushing an open door to an extent. Um, there are probably a number of things he may ask for. Uh, number one, there is concern among a lot of skeptics here about the so-called Sunset Clause. This is the fact that the deal essentially lasts till 2025 in that after that point, Iran could technically start stockpiling their weapons again. So there's concern about that. Um, number two, uh, there's concern about Iran's broader activity in the region as a sponsor of terrorism, essentially, particularly their role in Syria and uh, their sponsorship and support of organizations like Hezbollah. And so that's a concern. And number three, there is a concern that although the international inspectors have access to the nuclear sites, they have only limited access to military sites. There's a clause in the additional deal, the additional protocol, it's called, which allows inspectors to request access to certain undeclared sites, including military sites. Um, But in reality, getting access can take quite a long time, can take about 24 days to complete so a lot of the hawks here are worried about that they want more access to military sites they're suspicious about that they're suspicious that maybe Iran is using this dual use technology it's called that can develop you know nuclear activity both for weapons and as well as other purposes so there are three areas of concern here that perhaps Donald Trump will want action on. Now the problem is, is how do you reopen this and how do you reopen the deal without collapsing the whole deal and kind of adding in these things because a defenders of the deal say look these weren't part of the original deal and if we start adding on things to the deal well then Iran can rightly say well hang on that wasn't part of the original agreement and so for example a lot of the Europeans are saying yes we are all aware of the 2025 issue but we will deal with that separately we will all start having that discussion soon there's no point in kind of attaching that's the deal at the moment so to be fair there is you know he is as i say um operating in in a situation where there is some resistance and of course we have the electoral cycle the midterm elections next year a little over a year away and you know trying to act tough on iran may be something that plays well particularly in republican districts in those elections
0: I guess the success of the deal from an Iranian perspective, uh, the fact that that oil exports have doubled uh, since it was signed, and I think a a host of major companies have signed investment deals, I I assume that actually does perhaps give leeway for for a bit of renegotiation. I mean, it would be a disaster Mm. for Iran, uh, presumably, for a a complete collapse of, of the deal.
2: Yeah, I think you're right in that, you know, who has a stronger hand here? And Iran obviously was crippled for so many years under these sanctions. So, yes, there is an argument that America has got negotiation space here. I think the worry, though, within Iran is the internal politics of this. Uh, Rouhani is seen as a moderate, the president, and somebody that people can can work with. Um, But uh, Ayatollah al-Khamenei, he's been keeping quiet, if you like, on this. But those hardliners within iran that is going to be difficult trying to keep those in line if you like um, so so how are they going to respond to this um so i think the internal politics are something to watch and that's what people are worried about that this could spark off um, a, a real reaction from particularly the hardliners within iran so um the public relations of this from the iranian point of view if you like are important how are the Iranian um, establishment going to sell that to the hardliners, to its public, that basically they're not just being messed around by the US on this deal, that they should never have trust them, et cetera. So I think um, that's the danger, that this kind of um, unknown about how Iran might act on this. Um, and that's what people are worried about, particularly the Europeans, on that. On the issue of, as you mentioned there, you're right about this opening up of the markets, essentially, and particularly the sale of oil from Iran, What's interesting here in the dynamic between Europe and America is that the sanctions, the lifting of sanctions, really they benefited European countries more in that a lot of European companies and countries started doing business with Iran around the early stages of, of going back into Iran. It's obviously geographically closer, for example. So I think the Europeans are very, very worried about legal issues and protecting their companies who've gone into Iran, less so on the American side. The Americans have not done as much um, investment in Iran since those sanctions were lifted two years ago. Um, and in that sense, it's quite similar to the Russian, the whole Russia issue and Russian sanctions. In fact, you know, European countries are, and companies are much more affected than the Russian sanctions than America. So yes, America put on sanctions on Russia, but essentially they did very little trade with Russia compared to European countries and companies. So I think the Europeans are annoyed because they essentially have more skin in the game here with the Iran deal. And that's another reason, not just the issue of international peace, but also the economic impacts that an unravelling of the deal may have.
0: Suzanne Lynch, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye.
0: For three decades, Martin Bell was known to us in our living rooms as the face of BBC war reporting, an authoritative voice from the front lines of conflicts from Vietnam to Northern Ireland, to the Balkans and many places in between. When his time at the BBC ended, he also had a somewhat bruising stint, as an independent MP for Tatton in the House of Commons. His new book, War and the Death of News, brings together colorful stories and reflections from a formidable career in news journalism. In a time of fake news and a ravenous news cycle, it is also a call to arms for contemporary war journalists to go back to the basics of news reporting. I'm delighted to be joined by Martin in the studio. You're very welcome, Martin. Pleasure is mine. Uh, one, of the, one of the first things that that strikes uh, struck me about this book is, is that you 've had a far more exciting career than most of us, um, and that you're also clearly better at keeping notes than, than most journalists. D- did your time as a soldier give you give you some of the discipline required for the, for the latter?
1: Well, it was very helpful because in those days you had to do two gap years if you were in uh, the United Kingdom or at least in Great Britain, and that was called National service. So at the age of eighteen I was disp- I was trained up and dispatched to Cyprus on active service against the rebels of Ayoko, who had risen up against the colonial regime. And it taught me a lot, and it's been incredibly useful later in life. For instance, it taught me field craft, which is how to survive in dangerous places. It taught me to relate to the military, so I didn't have to ask daft questions about what's the difference between a commanding officer and an officer commanding, and there is one, and not to mistake an armoured personnel carrier for a tank, and the military respect that.
0: Okay, and, and obviously you, you, you did keep incredibly careful um, notes of, of all your experiences, even, in, even going back to Vietnam, reading the book, you've a lot of, you've a lot of material there that you, you, you've gathered over the years.
1: I didn't keep notes of my time as a soldier, but I did write letters home, which my mother kept in an old chocolate box. And they're now lodged in the, in the Imperial War Museum as part, because I, I am history now. Yeah. But you, you always kept notes, and there was a reason for uh, for for doing it. Uh, one was that you might be called to account for something you'd written a long time ago. Uh, years ago, when I was in uh, in Bosnia, I was, I was there at the time when the Great Bridge in Mostar was blown up, I think in 1994. And sometime later, I got a call from a lawyer in The Hague because the... the commander who was alleged to have done it, a man called Slobodan Traliak, a Croat. said he, called, he wasn't there on that day. He was with me in Prozor, which was elsewhere in central Bosnia. Well, I looked on my notes and my diary, and he was one day out. Collapse of alibi. That's a good reason to keep notes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah, there's a lot of material in, in this book, obviously, about your, your career in general. Um, but but I suppose that the central thesis of of war and the death of news, what degree was it motivated by frustration at watching the news um, in, in this era of alternative facts and, and sort of Wild West social media, I suppose?
1: And what I call the celebrification of the news agenda. I mean, personally, I don't care so much about the comings and goings of the Kardashian family as the news editors in what to be used to be Fleet Street or or indeed uh, television news. I think there has been a, a dumbing down. But more seriously, there has been an exclusion of journalists from war zones for understandable reasons. The worst thing that could happen to me, it had only happened once, was to be caught in the crossfire. Now they are kidnapped, taken out, ransomed, and maybe executed, and this is a powerful disincentive. As A result of which I think a lot of, and I'm not criticizing individuals, largely the same. I wouldn't I wouldn't go out with such a high risk of being killed, but we know very little evidence about what's going on in in syria at all Um, one of the greatest of contemporary war reporters is anthony lloyd of the times two years ago he was taken out kidnapped by his minder and shot in the ankles and he was very lucky to escape yeah
0: the situation in syria seems to be the, the biggest example perhaps of 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 um the information warfare around conflicts and there's um, uh, disputes have been raging about um, the degree of ext- extremism or otherwise uh, in, in the uh, opposition to Bashar al-Assad. H- how do we how do we overcome that if if there aren't journalists on the front line on the ground there?
1: We don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in an age of uh, in which the fog of war is swirling over ab- absolutely everything. There are of course um, bloggers out there, and there are there are, there are alleged war zone videos available but it's very difficult to find that authenticity. Mm. I know some of the broadcasters have 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 whole departments uh, devoted to trying to determine which videos coming out of the war zones are are possibly true and which are fake news and which are are total uh, mendacity.
0: You make clear, I suppose, though, also that that sort of falsification, fabrication, isn't new as such. Um, there was always different ways of doing it, maybe more subtle ways.
1: Oh, I've got I've got a whole chapter about the the, the falsification of news. Long before there was fake news, there were journalists uh, 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 up against a, a deadline. I mean, I give the example of the crash of a Turkish Airlines DC ten over France in 1974, and a very reputable newspaper sent out a, a, a well regarded correspondent and he's up against the tidies of deadlines and he came up with all kinds of uh, of quotes of french farmers who saw this aircraft crashing i know they were completely fabricated because um, he told me so and there were falsehoods in television news as well the uh, the dubbing the most common is the dubbing of extra gunfire on soundtracks and correspondents having themselves rushing across the road as if they're under fire well i actually I actually showed this chapter in its draft to a couple of journalists. I don't I don't name the miscreants because they don't want to spend the next five years in the courts of law. And they got every one of them right. We know who they are, <laughs> both print and television.
0: It didn't cause too much of a scandal as such, though it was just part of the business, was it? Falsification as such?
1: Well, it's an interesting thing. You can plagiarism can be caught by search engines. Um the Independent had a very well known correspondent, Joanne Harry, who sort of left soiled, more or less in disgrace because he was found out, but sheer invention. You can plunge into a crowd in Tiananmen Square as a foreign correspondent and come up with amazing quotes. Well, are they true or not? You've, you, the, the only break on you is your, is your own conscience, you've got to live with yourself. But I'm, what I'm saying is that that used to happen in those days. What happens these days is there are entire websites devo- making money. Out of spreading falsehoods, like the Pope endorses Donald Trump, this kind of thing. And the more outrageous the falsehood, the more money they make. This is a very dangerous trend.
0: Is there, I mean, other than obviously the technology changing, but is there any intervention that can, that can alter that course?
1: No, but I think we have to defend the principle of fact-based news. I mean, you, you live by it in the Irish Times, and you have to. Uh, I'm not sure what the situation is on this side of the Channel, but on my side, uh, the weekly press is in terrible trouble. It's uh, losing circulation. The provincial dailies are in difficulty, and so are some of the and so are some of the some of the nationals. So there is a crisis in journalism, which journalists are quite understandably very reluctant to talk about.
0: You delve into another idea also in the book that uh, you tease out, uh, the idea of balance uh, in more reporting and and suggesting that it's it's perhaps overrated, Um, and you write about the example of Sarajeva and use the phrase journalism with attachment. Can you uh, explain that a little for us?
1: Yeah, when I joined as a grade B reporter in 1964, it's very much on the tradition of the one hand this, the other hand that, only time will tell. Well, if you're caught in the middle of a maelstrom like the three and a half years of the Siege of Sarajevo, you cannot give equal time to the aggressor and the victim, to the armed and the unarmed. It's not to, to side with one faction or another. Uh, uh, accuracy is more than ever vital, and I spent a lot on, more than most of the other reporters, with the Bosnian Serbs who were deemed to be the bad guys, and I got to know them really well. But I, did, I didn't say, I don't think I was prescribing the journalism of attachment, but I was describing something that was happening. And if you look at today's practitioners, and I give example of Bill Neely, formerly of ITV News, now NBC, Ola Gerin, formerly with RTE, now the BBC, keen they practice that sort of journalism. They are not neutral between the victim and the aggressor.
0: That war in the, in the Balkans, um, you, you write a lot a lot about uh, about that, um, and cl- it's clear that had a, a major impact on you. Uh, why was that per- above all?
1: Well, first of all, I'd been around the war zones already something like 25 years before it happened, so I, I knew how to disport myself how, on the whole. I had a better chance of staying alive. But we were, it wasn't so much that it was the second war in Europe in 50 years. The first was in Croatia the year before. It was that we were caught up in the siege, uh, which lasted so long for three and a half years. And we got to know the people. I lost a few friends there. It made you think about the principles of journalism and, and war reporting and neutrality and the importance of getting things right. And when I started war reporting in Vietnam in 67, I look at the stuff I did and I'm almost ashamed of it. It was totally obsessed with firepower and orders of battle and weapon systems. And I spent all the time with the Americans. And I thought, how could, a, how could a, a, an army of 400,000 lose in a small country? When it had all these, these weapons and it could feed its troops on waffles and maple syrup in the forward operating bases, where the answer is it could very easily, perhaps because of the relative luxuries the soldiers lived in, whereas the Vietnamese were fighting on their own soil, uh, for their own soil. And one of the conclusions I've come to, and this book is really about drawing conclusions from nearly half a century in the unquiet corners of the world, is that uh, the application of armed force very seldom achieves the results that those who initiated expect. This was my experience of Cyprus, it was the experience of the Americans in uh, in, in in Vietnam. And I think it's been the experience of my own arm, for the British armed forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, neither of which were successful expeditionary campaigns.
0: You you say so you mentioned you did get close to some of the, the Bosnian Serb leaders, and I know there are a few references to uh, the likes of Arkhan and Karadz, uh, Karadzic. Um, what was it like sort of getting to know them in that environment, and, and, and sort of obviously as professional?
1: I think if as a war reporter you hang out only with the people you approve of, you're not going to get very far. As a, as a newspaper man or woman, you can sit back in the hotel and you can write analytical pieces. In television news, access is everything, and the warlords hold the access. In many cases, um, Arkan was a was a nasty piece of work, and eventually, eventually killed. Many of them were killed. I tell the story at one point of meeting a, another warlord, a well-known character called Euphras Prasina, who was a paramilitary, initially with the Bosnian government side when the war began, but he then defected to the Bosnian Croats, and he gave me a big hug on some mountain track, and I and I wrote in my diary at the end of the day, and I always keep notes that. Everyone's lying, but it doesn't matter because no one's listening either. It's one of the principles of war reporting.
0: You, you, you quote the, uh, the reporter Martha Gellhorn uh, saying that as a, as a journalist, you can only love one war. Um, is that true? It's quite an interesting phrase.
1: Well, I mean, she, she knew. I mean, she was obviously, her first war was the Spanish Civil War, but she was there. She managed to smuggle herself into the D-Day landings, which is very clever for a woman at that time. There was, I think, one more is going to affect you more than any other, and this one in Bosnia did simply because I was I was there the the longest, and by that time I should have known enough to do the job better. I mean, I can look back on some of my stuff from Bosnia and say that was okay. Some of the stuff from Vietnam, I'm still ashamed of.
0: You're 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 quite critical uh, of the BBC at times. Obviously, having spent so long there, you're bound to, bound to have seen uh, the good and the bad. Um. And you say it retains an inbuilt capacity for doubting its own reporters. Is it a tougher time to be a foreign correspondent at the BBC Today? Or has that trust been eroded perhaps with the, with the, the viewer?
1: I think it's a tougher time in, in various ways. Um, partly there are so many beasts to be fed. We would go out for nearly all my career, go out with camera, could go and find things out, um, bring them back and send a report. Now the demands of rolling news are such that when a big story happens, the BBC and the other main news organisations have to send not one team but two. One is to to go and find things out and the other is to feed the beast, be chained to the satellite-ish all day. It's called being a a dish monkey in the business.
0: That's a phrase I I hadn't heard actually until I I read it there. Um, You you write quite a bit about your experiences in in Northern Ireland and especially the as, as a BBC man there in particular, um, what was that like?
1: We were under much more pressure than our rivals in what was then ITN, now ITV News, because we were the national broadcaster. And because television was really new, um, relatively. And fortunately, there was no rolling news in those days. Otherwise, they would have certainly added a burning satellite dish to the, to the barricades of burning buses. But the pressures were huge. Uh, and I remember people... Being on the streets, uh, sort of jostling, was quite a bit, and, and the streets were suddenly clear at about 5:40, 5.40, 5:45 in the evening, because they then went in to watch themselves on television. You see, so then they come back out about six, and I'd be back on the streets, and they'd tell me what they felt. But it was as close to civil war as ever happened since the origin of British, or for that of British uh, broadcasting. Okay. Uh, and and there was a degree of censorship went with it, which I have written about. We had a character called Walden Maguire, who was the BBC's viceroy, which means a controller in Northern Ireland, and he had been the editor of television news, so he knew me very well. And when the Catholics got burned out of their homes off the falls in August 1969, I was putting together my report of the day and uh, I felt a lurking presence in the edit room. It was Waldo, and he said, you can't call them Catholics, you must call them refugees. He didn't want it to be, no, who were the victims, who were the, who, who, who were the attackers? I said, look, Waldo, here's a picture of a woman wheeling away her possessions from a burnt-out house, and the crucifix is on top. She's not a Protestant, is she? Um, but I, 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 I regret, and I've, I've admitted guilt that I, I was 30, I was ambitious. I felt editors were paid to edit, but I now think I made a mistake in not
0: kicking against it. It's an extraordinary detail. Um, you do have a, a pop at a few uh, reporters in the book. Um, uh, John Pilger and John Simpson come come up. Um, how intense are, are, are the rivalries among among um, war correspondents for foreign, foreign correspondents?
1: Well, they are. They are especially um, intense. I don't regard Pilger really as a reporter. I regard him as a polemicist. Mm. Um, as for John Simpson, I've known him for a very long time. And about sometime, about 1995, he wrote a... He, he, he disputed my theories of journalism, so he wrote a lengthy, well-headlined piece in the Sunday Times. Uh, so something like, Spare us, save us from reporters who pass judgments. And he said, Martin Bell is talking nonsense and he knows it. Well, I kept my counsel for 20 years, and I gave him a very measured response because I think I've won the argument.
0: I think no discussion about, about foreign, foreign coverage would be, um, would, be, would be complete without mention of Donald Trump. Um, you write about your time in uh, Washington and, and describe Reagan as a constitutional monarch um, who was, I think you say, shrewd and oblivious. It strikes me that Trump is a bit like that himself, but perhaps um, the difference being Reagan appeared to know his own strengths and his own weaknesses. Do you think that's fair or is, are they just totally different characters?
1: Um, well, they, they are both presidents nominally of the same party uh, and they both had careers elsewhere, but I think that's where it ends. Um, Reagan, although he was losing his powers towards the end, was a marvellous communicator, the best they've had until Barack Obama came along. His speeches were written by, mostly by Peggy Noonan, a scriptwriter who thought inside his cadences, and he surrounded himself with very clever people. Fortunately, there were no tweets in those days but it's worth listening to something he said. He said, you can make your own luck if you know what to say when a red light goes on. He means the red light on the on the camera. Look back on his presidency, all eight years. He served for two terms. He's, he, was re, he was re-elected over the 49 of the 50 states. And uh, it is regarded now in Washington by Democrats, too, as one of the most successful presidencies. Obama himself said towards the end of his presidency, and he served two terms, he said he thought that Reagan had changed the trajectory of American public life in a way that Richard Nixon didn't and Bill Clinton didn't. And what he had, you think about Trump, he doesn't have any jokes, have you noticed? He never laughs. He's got no laughter in the man. Uh, uh, Reagan had a, had, a, had a dry wit, uh, and he could, um, he, could, he could communicate. He had this sunny optimism. You know, it's morning in America. And you don't get this from the present incumbent. I find it really scary what's going
0: on. He probably laughs at his own jokes, that's, that's about it. I don't think he makes jokes, I think he knows a joke. Yeah. Just look looking um, outside the world of journalism and, and just to your time as a politician, um, how did your experience match up to your expectations? Uh,
1: not at all, I, I was shocked. I was probably shocked by my four years in the House of Commons more than my 30 years in the was End, because I'm a romantic. You walk in. You're, you're an elected representative of the people. You walk in past these grand statues. And then you hit the reality of Prime Minister's questions. It's not just the boisterousness and the school boy behaviour. It struck me as sort of legislative hogwarts it is the willingness of mps to vote against measures they believe in and in favor of measures that they don't and you saw this at, ex- at extreme i'd gone by then in the iraq war of march 2003 you know we can't i'm sure you would do better in the doyle but we certainly don't
0: i suppose um brexit has also presented a, 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 another window into into how things work in the uk certainly and f- certainly from the outside the situation um, seems like a bit of a mess. How do how do you view it from your from your perspective as a former journalist and and also poli- former politician? Uh,
1: I'm 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 shocked as well. I mean, every summer, our Prime Minister seems to take a gamble on an electoral contest and 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 fail. I mean, we are not I, I hope a xenophobic people, but the xenophobes won in this case. And now, and now we have to face the consequences. I mean, we are essentially, I think, an, in the UK, one ungoverned country. We have an, a Conservative Party in office by the grace and favour of the, of the DUP. It's got the tiger by the tail, can't let go for fear of being eaten, because they know that if they call an election, they're, they're going to lose. So we're in a state of stasis, I think, at the moment, of not knowing where we are, and this is at a time when the world is most dangerous, I think, since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So I'm, uh, I'm fairly depressed about it, to be quite honest. But I've tried to put a bit of humor in the book because people say, how do you survive the war's zones? Well, those who drink, drink too much. Those who smoke, smoke too much. Those who do other things with other people, do those other things too much. And the other thing that gets you through is a, is a dark humor.
0: Absolutely. Um, You you mentioned that that it is the most dangerous time, uh, in in your views, since the 60s. Which of the current crises are are you um, perhaps most concerned about?
1: I'm most concerned about having an unhinged, unmoored character in the White House. Uh, And obviously the the greatest current anxiety is the situation in North Korea, where they've got um, another one. So I'm pinning my face on what I call the American hunter, the three four-star generals around him, uh, uh, Mattis and, uh, and, uh, and, and McMaster especially.
0: Uh, just, just finally, uh, Martin, you, you do lay out near the end of the book a lot of advice for foreign correspondents nowadays, um, and a lot of it uh, was, was valuable to me uh, when I read it. Um, what do you think the most important advice is for, for, for foreign correspondents?
1: I think it's, it's don't trust anybody, uh, don't believe everything you're told, be very careful with the facts, believe what you see, face the front um, in a riot. And especially these days when you can pull in stuff on the internet from, from everybody. Um, stay authentic. Speak with, your, speak with your own
0: voice. Martin Bell, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks to today's contributor in Washington, Suzanne Lynch, and to Martin Bell for joining us in studio. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. I'm David McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts.